Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. Listeners, another day, another interview, and yet another brilliant debut novel. This time, a poignant, beautifully written coming-of-age novel about a difficult mother-daughter relationship, dealing with mental health issues in the context of a faith that could not understand such issues, and how children deal with difficult family dynamics. An uplifting but at times heartbreaking novel, capturing the unique and irrepressible voice of its 12-year-old protagonist, Dorcas Wilson. Call the Family String, written by South Australian author Denise Picton, published by Ultimo Press. And here with me today to chat about her novel is Denise herself. Welcome to the podcast, Denise. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. And congratulations. How are you feeling about its publication? Oh, well, it's just so exciting to have a book finally make its way into the world. So uh, wonderful. And it's been very fortunate to have Ultimo as the publisher. They've been terrific and looking after me. Denise, you've had a long and varied career before debuting as a novelist. And as such, would you say that The Family String has been a long time in the making? When I was in my sort of mid-50s, I decided if I didn't hurry up and write a novel, I'd need help from someone in the aged care facility to hold the pen. (laughs) Uh, So I started writing, and this was actually the second uh, novel that I wrote. And I'd written, I think, five by the time I found someone to publish any of them. So there was a little gap uh, between the time I drafted it and and when I finally found someone to pick it up. What finally made you want to write a story that drew on your own upbringing in the Christadelphian church? I was thinking about growing up in the 60s in Adelaide and I didn't have uh, many photos. I didn't have much of anything to remind me about that time. And so it started with me just thinking, well, I might do a photo album in writing equivalent. And I just started to write about some of the things I remembered about growing up around 12 in Adelaide. And once I'd just remembered some of that, Dorcas, the main character in particular, just turned up fully formed. She just sort of walked up to me with her brother and sister standing behind her and went, radio, ready now. So that's sort of how it happened. One of the perks of hosting this podcast is all of the interesting bits of knowledge I've acquired along the way, things that I probably wouldn't have otherwise learnt about. And whilst I have to confess ignorance about Christadelphians, I was intrigued by this aspect of the story, all the more for learning that it was part of your own life. So I wondered if you could tell me about your upbringing and why you wanted to explore this through Dorcas in this novel. Uh, Well, yes, I grew up in a Christadelphian family. Mum and Dad were very uh, involved in the church. My father's passed away. My mother still is. And she actually lives in a Christadelphian rest home. But I left the church probably 40 years ago now. It's interesting because not many people know too much about Christadelphians. When I was little, people used to ask me if I belonged to the Ku Klux Klan because they just thought Christadelphian sounded odd. Perhaps it was the same sort of thing. But for for people who've not met the Christadelphians, I can't really speak for them any longer because it's been so long since I've been involved with the church. But it was probably, I was probably closest to my Baptist friends in terms of 
a fairly fundamentalistic uh, church, but it was different. And I wanted to write about a family that dealt with difference. And I thought, well, that's a difference I had from kids around me growing up. And so why don't I use that kind of context? The story, I'm very glad to say, did not happen to me or my family. And that's not my family represented in the book. But the context is growing up in that church is. Interestingly, a lot of people expect me to say that it must have been a terrible experience. It was reasonably strict church in lots of ways. But actually, I have to say I had a lovely time because it was a really wonderful community of people who were very kind and I felt very safe and I had great friends. And it wasn't till I was in my 20s that I decided it wasn't really for me. But the differences I experienced were interesting compared to friends around me. Can you elaborate on those differences? Yes, certainly. So, for example, and I refer to this in the book, we were told that we were in the world but not of the world, and that we had to keep ourselves separate from the world. We uh, read the Bible every day. There were Bible readings every day in the family. Sunday was the most important day of the week. We went to what's called the memorial meeting at 11 o'clock in the morning Sunday, Sunday school at three, and then um, the public address, as it was called, at seven o'clock at night. So Sunday was all about church. Uh, Saturdays were youth group activities and church activities, and so were most of our holidays. We went on Bible camps. During the week, my father would go to Bible class on Wednesday nights. For my parents, I'm sure it wasn't true for every family, but in my family, the annual Sunday school exam, the results of that were more important than school results. And so we had an exam, I forgot the exact time, late in the year, I think probably late September, early October. And in December, there was what was called prize night. And you always had a new frock. And you, uh, one by one, you came up onto the platform and were given a certificate. And if your marks were in the top uh, three, if you had one of the top three marks in Australia for your age group, you won what was called the union prize. And for my parents, the union prize was much more important than school results. So it was different and we weren't encouraged to uh, go to uh, activities at school or in the community, really just church activities. Then I understand that you were encouraged not to vote. Yes, Christadelphians still, I'm pretty sure, still don't vote. Uh, The reason for that is uh, they believe that political outcomes are God's will and therefore they might be voting against God's decision And so, you know, I didn't vote until after I left the church. They deal with it respectfully. They write a letter and explain their religious beliefs. They don't just uh, pay no attention. So they take it very seriously, but no, they don't vote. I'm pretty sure they still don't vote. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Okay, so I think we've spoken enough around the novel. Now I wondered, Denise, for those who haven't read it yet, if you could tell us a little bit more about the story. Sure. This is a story of a family with a mum and dad. Dad goes to work. Mum's at home. Mum's migrated from Scotland in her teens and uh, she trained as a hairdresser and she's really struggling with depression, with untreated depression. She has four kids, one who lives away from home now, the oldest, and three at home, uh, Dorcas and Ruthie and Caleb. They all have biblical names, which was not uncommon in my church. And the story is told, certainly not a children's book, but it's told through the eyes of 12-year-old Dorcas, 
who is, well, she's really a bit of a rat bag of a kid. She's often her own worst enemy. She's got lots of imagination, lots of energy, and she just keeps getting herself into bother, really. And the story is about how Dorcas and her mum in particular find their way through a couple of family crises, and uh, I won't reveal too much, but they do involve a guinea pig and Joan of Arc. That's perhaps all I'll say about those. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I absolutely love it. Denise, I alluded to this in my introduction, but you have captured an incredibly unique voice in the character of Dorcas and the way she relays the events happening to and around her. She's such a special character. So I wondered if you could tell me more about your inspiration for her. I think for that aspect of the book, I called upon an earlier career I had. So my first working professional career, I worked in child welfare and I worked with what you, I'm so old that it used to be called the Children's Protection Society of Victoria. Uh, and uh, so I used to investigate child abuse. It was a not-for-profit in those days. It wasn't run by the government. It had its own bit of legislation. And uh, I used to hop on the tram to go and do child abuse investigations because we only had one company car, which was an old Tirana turquoise in colour that was so rusted out you could see the road as you drove along and you could only get children into the back seat on one side because the other door was tied together with straps because it was broken. So I worked a lot with uh, families that were really struggling in that job and uh, then um, some years later I worked for the Uniting Church. I ran the Canterbury Family Centre which doesn't exist now, it was in Camberwell in those days, for children under the age of of, um, eight. So I spent a lot of time working with kids and I think uh, that made it uh, easier for me to find the voice for Dorcas, having spent so so much time. I was always particularly interested in kids who actually were doing a lot of the parenting of their parent. And Dorcas, in some ways does act as parent because her mum isn't always emotionally available, certainly not to her and sometimes not generally. As you mentioned, she's 12 years old. She's the oldest girl in her family, but she, you've just alluded to it. I felt that when I was reading it, she bears the brunt of her mother's displeasure and nearly every other adult in her life, nearly. And at times I was really overcome with sadness for this little girl who just wanted to be loved. And I found myself gasping at some of the cruelties inflicted on this child and I know that she was an unreliable narrator and she was often insensitive and outright disobedient a lot of the time still did you find these things difficult to write and if so how did you get inside this mindset I didn't really find it uh, difficult to write because she's also a remarkably resilient child and she's a very imaginative child children until a certain age Um, coming up to the sort of age she is, always tend to think if something's wrong, it is their fault. Mm. And so I was used to working directly with kids that thought when things went wrong in the family, it was probably their responsibility. Mm. And so uh, because I'd had some of those experiences, it made it easier for me to find the way that Dorcas would look at the world. And I dealt a lot with mums that were suffering from depression. In the 60s, of course, we didn't have a lot of 
support options for women suffering from depression. We don't always now. And my church wasn't the only one. In those days, you were often told just to pick yourself up and get on with it. And in our church, the prescription for depression was pray more. So Dorcas was doing the best she could, but actually so was her mum. Her mum was doing the best she could too in some ways because it, she, it wasn't understood and it was seen as a lack of faith if you actually suffered from depression. So they both had their struggles. But you're right, Dorcas just badly wanted to be loved. She wanted to be a knight of the round table. Uh, she wanted to have a, a dog to love her. You know, she wanted her mum to love her. So she was constantly seeking for that in different ways. She would have been a trial of a kid to raise as well, truth be known. <laughs> as I said, you know, she was indisputably disobedient and yes. she often said things before thinking. And yes. and I often wanted to say, don't, Dorcas, don't, don't do it, don't do it. But she, she went there and she did it anyway. Yes. She did, she went there. <laughs> And in the end, she became so real to me. In fact, she still is real to me. Dorcas and the neighbour, Mr Driver, those two characters still live with me every day. And I will often think, oh, what would Dorcas say? And in fact, for a while, I kept on socials telling people what Dorcas thought. You know, Dorcas wants to know why Fritz sandwiches aren't available in every sandwich shop. I mean, you know, why not? So she's continued to live with me as a character in my head. I think she probably always will. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that at all. Now, I want to talk about Mr. Driver a little bit later, but but I want to say a little bit more about or talk a little bit more about mental illness and this theme that's running through the heart of this novel. And I loved the fact that the Wilson children, Dorcas and her siblings, characterised their mother's moods on a daily basis and that was notated. She had cross days and she had head days and then she had Jesus days. Yes. And more often than not, her moods dictated the children's moods and movements and it led to much speculation amongst the children about how these came about. And often, as you you said Dorcas felt that she was to blame. Yes, she did. And then she would do something that would be absolutely provoke her mother. Yeah. Uh, but she was pretty sure. In fact, I think all the kids were pretty sure Dorcas was largely the problem. And so, uh, as you know, they've, they've got a tree house with a piece of string hanging in it and they've got a bead on the string representing each of them and they move the beads up and down as an indicator of how loved they are by mum and dad. And Dorcas's bead is always at the end. Poor little sausage. Poor yes. little sausage indeed. And so obviously that's where we get the title of the book from. Yes, that's right. And the kids were surprised, just thinking about this as you as you mentioned it, the kids thought that nobody knew about their family classification system <laughs> using the beads. But in fact, their father knew all along, didn't he? He did. They didn't realise that till after rather horrendous event which exposed a number of issues in the family and much to Dorcas's surprise after that uh, she realised her dad had known all along. Denise you amassed quite a cast of characters for this book you know there was Dorcas's siblings as you mentioned Ruthie, Caleb and Daniel, uh, the Johnsons next door, Aunt Maisie and of course the gentle and loving Mr Driver. I found him to be such a beautiful character and it's no wonder that he still lives alongside you and you think about him I love that Dorcas felt safe enough to go to him when she was particularly distressed so I wanted to ask you given all of your experiences how important is it for children with difficult home lives to have someone like Mr Driver to turn to oh look 
just fundamental. You know, I think that old saying about it takes a village to raise a child is so true. And yet we isolate families now so much. And if you don't happen to have a loving grandma or grandpa, and these children didn't, then finding an adult who takes an interest is just so vital. Yes, I, I feel he's real. And, and I love him in some ways. He probably was everything I've ever wanted as a kid in, a, in an older grandparent or adult. All the loveliness, but also the interestingness all wound up in one. Dorcas was fortunate, given she didn't have grandparents available or loving, that Mr Driver just decided that he, he particularly loved Dorcas. He just decided, fortunately to take some responsibility for her on a couple of incidents. And when she couldn't stay in her own house, for reasons explained in the book for a, a short time, she went and stayed in his spare room. And he's just an absolutely golden human being and he's everything as a kid I wished I had uh, in a grandparent who'd care for me. Do you think that Dorcas's ability to remain hopeful and resilient was in large part due to his steady, calm presence in her life? Look, I like to think that Dorcas would have was resilient enough to overcome almost anything, but there's no doubt that things would have been just so much more difficult without that neighbour. Hard to say, but I guess I, I just believe in Dorcas's spirit, but you know, thankfully, the universe wrapped Mr. Driver around her and got her through some really dark days. Yeah, absolutely. Denise has mentioned you've had a long and successful career in management consultancy, as well as an early career as a social worker. But I wondered, did you always have aspirations to write? Yes, I did. I used to, I've, I, my mum says I was always writing. And one of my favourite things as a kid was a new exercise book. And i uh, would open that up and feel the thrill of, oh, I wonder what I'll, what story I'll write in this book. So I did always write. I wrote at high school. I wrote poetry in high school in particular and had uh, some poetry published uh, in an anthology. Then I wrote short fiction in early adulthood and uh, literary fiction, and, and that was picked up by Southerly and Social Alternatives and couple of other journals. And then my business was so busy for so many years that it wasn't until my 50s that I thought, look, if you, you've got to hurry up now. So that's when I decided that I would seriously tackle writing a novel. Could you tell me a little bit more about your path to publication? Certainly. Uh, the first uh, novel I wrote, I thoroughly enjoyed writing it and I was almost relieved that I could write 80,000 words about something. But it was deeply, deeply, shockingly terrible. And it's been buried in the bottom of a cupboard in an Ikea box, probably never to be resurrected for any reason. But what that taught me was that uh, I could write a full manuscript. So that was really valuable. Family String was the second novel that I wrote. And then uh, I decided just to keep writing. I had a literary agent at one stage that was interested and who was really supportive, but kept saying, what will the next project be? And then she kept saying, oh, that one sounds interesting. I might wait for that one. So she looked at a few and I, was, I hadn't sent any of my books out much. A small publishing house was interested in the family string as well, but unfortunately the editor changed and they lost it. And so uh, that sort of fell a bit flat. 
So I was getting to the stage of feeling a bit despondent. I'd probably been writing for about six years by that stage. And I went to one of Fiona McIntosh's classes and that just gave me a boost, just gave me a sort of uh, energy again, as Fiona tends to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Remarkable classes. She should be, I keep telling her she should have a fringe festival event because she's so funny. She's so entertaining as well. And then what happened was just before I went to Fiona's class, I decided to pay for a professional editor uh, to look at a couple of my books. And um, just I thought I need some feedback. I need to see if I should keep writing or not. I think I was at the point of should I keep writing or not. And although editors don't usually do this, She loved the family string so much, she contacted me and said, could I send this to someone uh, that I know? And uh, I said, you know, of course. In fact, in the same week, because of Fiona's connections, I had interest in one novel and I had Ultimo interested in this one. So it was a six-year famine and then a week of plenty. And Ultimo offered me a two-book deal and just clearly loved the book. And Alex Craig was just so persuasive. And I just thought, oh, no, this woman's wonderful. And, of course, she brought people like Hannah Kent to the market when she was the publisher for Picador. And I thought, gosh, I'd be in awfully good hands here. And so, um, and that all happened within 48 hours. Oh, my goodness. That's yeah. just wonderful. How brilliant. Yeah. What, a, what a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. Denise, what do you know about writing and publishing now that you wished you knew before you were published? I'm glad I didn't know some things because I might have given up early. <laughs> <laughs> what I've loved is being edited. And I think I've been in the hands of such expert editors Um, particularly structural edits, when you get the first big editing report and you open it and it's just just so much to take in. But I love that. Mm. I love working through those reports. I often have a minute where I have to cry and then once I've got over the crying for a minute because it feels so overwhelming when you first open the report, once I'm over that, I think, right, fabulous, and I've loved that. So the particularly the big structural edits, I've really, really loved those. What I didn't understand, and I don't know why I didn't really because I've been in business all my life, is publishing is essentially a business, and so it's commercial business. They've got to make money, and so what they need to do is pick up debuts like me and sort of scatter them to the to the, in the field and wait and see which ones actually really do uh, flourish and grow and which ones don't. And so learning about how that business part of things work, you kind of do it by listening to other writers, noticing things, making mistakes and asking questions and I now feel I could probably write an orientation package for <laughs> first writers because there's so much I wish I knew that I understand now. So that's been times challenging. Social media, look, frankly, I had this fantasy and I'm sure I'm not the only one. In fact, I know a lot of other writers have told me this. I really hope someone would buy the book, they'd read it and go, oh, thank you very much. 
Here's your edit. You've missed two full stops out. Do you mind if we <laughs> pop those back in for you? Lovely. Here's a lovely cover. Thank you very much. Um, we'll leave you alone now for the rest of your life. But, of course, it's not like that. And um, much as I, in my um, professional career I stand up and speak to people pretty much every day, I wasn't expecting the extent to which I needed to be available as an author. Uh, so that's been surprising. But frankly, because I'm it's kind of making a transition because I'm closer to 70 than 60 now, uh, I'm making a transition out of consulting work. The timing of this has been wonderful for me. Because I'm not, I don't think I'd have coped very well with just going into retirement, but actually starting a new career, hopefully a new career that hopefully will engage me, you know, forever now has just been absolutely a gift. I'm sure that orientation manual will come in very handy for lots of <laughs> debuts. <laughs> I think you should definitely go ahead with that project. <laughs> Probably should. <laughs> With that said, do you have any particular tips for people out there who are looking to get published? Look, never give up. I think just keep going. I've seen reports that say it's an average of seven years for a fine publisher. So I think never give up. But also, if it's not working for you, the world of self-publishing is changing and I think there's lots of options, other options now if you don't go down the traditional route. Keep writing, keep writing, keep writing. I'm working on my eighth novel now. And I think the important thing is they may not all be published. Uh, in fact, I suspect several may not. But you've just got to keep writing. And find fellow writers who can form a support network with you. I've been terribly lucky. A lovely, lovely woman, also another to my press person, Natasha Scholl, she uh, she called out to people and said, who's this having the first book published? And she formed a little network online. And that book gang has been just wonderful. Every one of them is very talented. And already, even in their first year, quite a few of them have been nominated for awards. So I happen to be in a group of people that are really talented, so massively supportive. So find yourself a network of, of uh, colleagues because it's lonely otherwise, I think. Denise, if listeners wanted to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you? I've got a, a poorly updated author site, uh, denisepictonauthor.com.au. <laughs> I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter. I use my name in all of those, so I'd be pretty easy to find, I think. Well, Denise, I was absolutely enlightened by Dorcas's story. I loved her as a character and I simply can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so very much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Thank you very much. I've loved it. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinechanellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.